Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. On episode 48 in March of 2018, Mato Moore Roshi appeared as a guest on the show to discuss the founding of Karinji Monastery in Wisconsin. Prior to being abbot of Karinji, Moore studied under three Rinzai Zen masters, Tenzan Toyeda Rokoji, under whom he also trained in traditional martial arts, Dogen Hosokawa Roshi, and Sozan Miller Roshi. All are in the lineage of Amori Sogen Roshi. Like many of the teachers in this lineage, his instruction stresses the embodied nature of Zen realization, often making use of physical culture and fine arts as complementary disciplines. In particular, he has stressed instruction of the internal energetic practices transmitted in Rinzai Zen. On this return visit to Classical Ideas, we discuss these exact ideas via Moore's new book, Hidden Zen, Practices for Sudden Awakening and Embodied Realization, out October 13th, 2020 from Shambhala Publications. This book reveals and details, for the first time, a treasury of direct pointing and internal energy cultivation practices preserved in the Rinzai Zen tradition. Moore describes 28 practices of direct pointing meant to illuminate one's innate clarity and, ultimately, the nature of mind itself. Hidden Zen affords a small taste of the richness of authentic Zen, helping readers grow beyond the bounds of introspection and sitting to find awakening itself. This return visit is a real treat for me because Moore comes up regularly on this show. Our mutual friend, Corey Hess, has appeared on this show to talk about Rinzai and Koan practice in episodes 80 and 108, and Moore's own student, Robert Schaefer, appears on episode 149 to discuss working with Moore at Karinji. If you want to learn about Karinji, you can find them online at karinji.org, and you can find a link to order the new book, Hidden Zen, in the show notes. You can find me on Twitter at Classical underscore Ideas. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Mato Moore. Mato Moore, it is a pleasure to welcome you back to Classical Ideas. Thank you so much for being here. Really, really nice to be here. Excellent. Well, for anybody who didn't hear our first conversation together or, you know, know of your work through other podcasts or other uh, work of yours. Can you introduce yourself a little bit for the audience, however you see fit? Sure. My name is Mado, um, last name of Moore, of course, and uh, I'm the abbot of Korenji, which is a Rinzai Zen Buddhist monastery located in Wisconsin, about uh, 50 miles northwest of Madison, the state capital. And uh, this, this place has been under development since 2008. Uh, we, about two and a half years ago, opened to full operation. So I'm here full time with a certain number of residents doing uh, intensive, uh, immersive Zen training. We also happen to be a uh, Shugendo training center connected to our, our headquarters in Japan. So, so we're doing Shugendo practice too. So kind of an interesting place in the middle of the Wisconsin woods. <laughs> I love it. Well, you appeared on this show on March 23rd, 2018 for episode number 48. And I've gone on to do this show for a long time since then. Um, so on that episode, we discussed your first book, The Rinzai Zen Way, which is out from Shambhala, which is still my favorite Zen practice book that I've ever read. And I highly encourage everybody to go back and find that book for sure. But we also discussed the creation, construction, and the opening of Korinji in Wisconsin that you just mentioned. And over the past two and a half years, yeah. much has happened there. Um, you know, I, I recently had a, a student of yours, Robert Schaefer, on the show to talk about his Jukai that he did there recently. But I would love to hear how you feel the monastery has grown, changed, developed, etc. over the past two plus years. What's going on at Korinji that you're really excited about? You know, I'm really excited that it exists, first of all, mm, yeah, <laughs> because it was quite a long process to, to get the place up and running. I, I think what people may not understand about the place, um, 
you know, of course, it was funded by donations. Um, we started with nothing. Mm. And when I say nothing, I literally mean nothing at all except the idea. Mm-hmm. And uh, somehow just by announcing that idea over a period of years, starting in 2003, actually, people slowly started pitching in and, and not big donations. You know, this has been a grassroots effort to get this place up and running. Many, many, many donations of $5, $10, $25, and so on eventually allowed us to purchase the land. That was 2008. 2009, we broke ground for the Zendo, which is a quite large structure. And that took us until 2014 to build because we would build what we could every year with the funding. It, it, it's really just been this um, amazing organic process of many, many people and many, many small donations coming together to bring this place to fruition. So with that, with that as the background, I'm excited to see it finally flowering and, and we have people living here full time doing traditional Rinzai Zen monastic training. We're not just a Zen center. That's important to understand. We're what's called a Sodo or a Senmon Dojo in Japanese, which is a um, place observing the full monastic schedule and a place qualified to train Rinzai Zen priests, um, a, a true monastic center. There just aren't that many of those in the West. So the fact of the, the existence itself is just so incredible to me. I pinch myself every, <laughs> time, every morning I wake up and walk around the place. I just don't, I just still not quite clear how all of this happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but how, it's quite amazing. How are the grounds developing? Yeah. I know that you have a large on-site garden and trails. How is the physical mm. nature surrounding the, Zen, the, uh, the monastery developing? Yeah, and that's really gratifying too. You know, we have um, just about 17 acres here of really deep forest and quite a lot of relief in the land, uh, deep ravines and so on. So it's quite beautiful and and so on. Carving the monastery out from that has been uh, not easy, but Hmm. uh, we now have a trail system going throughout the place. Our garden, which you mentioned, um, quite a large vegetable garden, which is providing all of our produce for a good part of the year, has just uh, really developed and taken off quite quite amazing yield <laughs> mm. and um we just little little things continue to pop up here as we develop the infrastructure um we have another structure that we're about to build uh soon um uh, you know for for storage and for some other purposes so a number of small outbuildings are starting to pop up around the grounds it's it's starting to feel less like a um uh, you know something that just arose recently and in, in more like a developed complex of sorts um, with a flow of work and activity moving through it. Uh, we really feel like we've put down roots on this wooded hillside in Wisconsin. And uh, th- that process as it continues is so gratifying. Oh, I love to hear it. Well, the way I found you originally a couple years back was uh, we have a mutual friend, Guogu, who appeared on my show mm-hmm. on episode 36. And then he sent me to you, and then so I did episodes of the podcast with both of you. And then last spring, you wrote to me, and you told me that you were doing an event in Chicago with Guogu. And so this was, right. this was very exciting to me, right? Like So like I, I made a plan with my wife. I bought a plane ticket to Chicago. I booked an <laughs> Airbnb, and I flew to Chicago to attend your event with Guogu and also with Dan Layton, I believe. It was the other person, correct? That's right. Yeah, so... Ty again, that's right. So I get there, and I'm out to dinner in Chinatown with my friend at a Michelin-starred Chinese restaurant in Chicago. And I get this text from Belinda at the Chicago, uh, you know, Buddhist meditation uh, center there that you were speaking at. And she's like, when are you arriving? And I'm like, what do you mean? I'll be there tomorrow. And I thought that the event was on a Saturday night. Like I had scheduled it in, in my phone as Saturday night and it was on a Friday night. So I'm sitting at the restaurant like five miles away from where you were meeting. And I went to the city hundreds of miles away to see your event. And then I completely got the day wrong. And I was so certain in the date that I just completely didn't even ever bother to double check that I had the wrong day. It was, it was ridiculous. Yeah. We say that some people have very deep roots with the Dharma, but not necessarily sharp ones. But somehow your roots with the Chinese food were quite sharp. Oh, my God. It, it your, was your so disappointing. Roots. 
<laughs> we'll meet another time, I'm sure, but uh, it was unfortunate to miss you. Absolutely. Well, okay, so the reason we're back together um, today is because you have a brand new book coming out on October 13th, 2020 on Shambhala Publications called Hidden Zen Practices for Sudden Awakening and Embodied Realization. I'm curious a little bit about the origin of this text. How did it come to take shape in your mind after the release of Rinzai Zenway? I mean, it's actually something that's been in my mind even before I wrote the Rinzai Zenway. Um, I wrote that first book to serve a particular purpose, which was kind of a, a solid foundation for people who are interested in Rinzai Zen practice but don't necessarily have access to a teacher yet or haven't found a teacher yet. So as you know, that book has a the first half of it is kind of a conceptual framework for practice, and the second part is, is focused on practice itself. Mm. But even before that, um, I became aware some years ago that Rinzai Zen in particular, and uh, perhaps our lineage of Rinzai Zen in particular, has a very unique approach to practice, a very embodied or, or what I would call a, a psychophysical approach, rather than a, a primarily mental or psychological approach that seems to have become prevalent in Western Zen. For whatever reason, our lineage of Rinzai Zen preserves a, a, what I consider to be the more genuine or older approach, which engages the whole being, including the body, in very uh, profound ways. So I had it in my mind, how am I going to share this material? Um, how am I going to show that what Zen is uh, ha involves a, a tremendous toolbox of practice methods and a tremendously profound depth of method that uh, it seemed to me a lot of Zen people are completely unaware of. So that that seed was in my mind for years and, and uh, discussions with some of my teachers, Hosokawa Roshi and um, Sozan Miller Roshi, who's the abbot of Daiyuzenji in Chicago over the years about these aspects of practice kind of uh, continued to plant more seeds. What came out was hidden Zen. Mm. And, and, and in a sense, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of revealing the, the hidden family treasures of our lineage, perhaps a little too openly. I'm sure I'll get some blowback for that. Mm. <laughs> but I felt like it needed to get out there. Yeah. Interesting. So, you know, the, the term hidden is in the title, and that's really interesting yeah. as well. Like, what do you see as being uh, something like, do you see Zen as being almost like, uh, reduced year after year instead of fully and more deeply being explored? Is that how you're seeing it on your end? So what I see in the West, um, a couple of things. First of all, let me speak to the word hidden. By sure. hidden, what I don't mean is that uh, the, the material in the book is somehow sealed as you know secret or, or must be concealed, and I'm scandalously, scandalously <laughs> revealing it. <laughs> um, what is true, and, and what a lot of people, I think even scholars, don't realize, is that most, the vast majority of what's truly crucial in Zen practice is not found in texts. It's not something you can find in the Zen writings, in the sutras. It's found or it's transmitted, it's preserved through what we call kuden. Kuden is the oral instruction from one's teacher. Mm -hmm. And kuden is what gives life to what's found in the texts. Uh, kuden is what reveals the actual crucial details, the, the experiences handed down from the lineage ancestors that allow one to bring the practices to life within one's own body. So uh, really crucial stuff. But, but again, hidden because you're not going to encounter this stuff unless you're in a deep relationship with a teacher. It's something that's whispered from ear to ear in a sense. So the book reveals a lot of that stuff, stuff that you wouldn't normally find written down anywhere. And uh, and I think it's important to do so because, I, I'm again, in the West, it seems this understanding is not prevalent. And a lot of that material either wasn't received here or has been lost. Um, so th th that's my interest to, to preserve it. Um, I, I think what I see happening in the West is that there has been a movement, of course, towards a secularization of approach largely driven by the fact that many Westerners negate or reject the kind of Buddhist view of our existence in terms of pre-birth and post-mortem continuity. They're reframing the intent of the path to be more of a uh, something that gives psychological 
resilience and stability and, and, and tools that are useful for living and working and so on, which is wonderful. But a lot of that um, tends to lead to a shrinking of the Zen toolbox and a negation of many of the traditional methods. I think that's a that's something of a tragedy. The other problem we have in the West, I think, is, and, and, and to speak frankly, some of the lineages that were transmitted here are problematic in that their teachers, Japanese teachers that were pioneers here, we now know that some of them were not actually qualified as teachers. Mm. And I don't want to speak too much to that, but it's a bit of a problem. They, they transmitted incomplete toolboxes or incomplete lineage inheritances to their Western followers. And it's really something we've only recently become aware of. So uh, I'm fortunate that that's not the case in our lineage. We have a, a complete transmission of what our lineage preserved over the centuries. So if by sharing that, I could let people see that, hey, there's a lot of variety. There's a lot of stuff that maybe you haven't encountered yet. That is Zen. And mm. it's so rich, so profound. I, I hope you know, my, my intent is not to criticize other traditions or other lineages that have these problems, but to say, hey, let's let's share this knowledge and let's bring some life into our Zen community as a whole in the West. Yeah. Kind of it, a long answer, but yeah, <laughs> that's all my deep intention right there. Well, and it also openly seeks to acknowledge where limitations actually are. So it's it's like it's something it's like not ignoring problems. It's saying, hey, we can fix this together. Do you know? Yeah, and we have to. We absolutely have to. I mean, when you have, for example, Rinzai Zen groups in the West that have existed for decades and didn't inherit inherit a koan training system completely or even at all. We have that situation with one of the Rinzai Zen groups in the West. The teacher was not doing traditional koan practice and may not have been qualified to do so. And yet the students for decades did not know this. Mm. This is really tragic. And it means that that lineage is broken, or at least we could say cannot use one of the most important Rinzai Zen methods that, that has been developed so you know to such a high degree. So if someone is in that position, I would think what they would want to do is heal their inheritance or, or fill in the gaps, uh, not, not cling to it out of, out of uh, memory or, or attachment, but Try to, to, to see what's lacking and go get it. So yeah. all I can do is put the information out there and hope that that's something that's of interest to folks. So is Hidden Zen a book that you personally needed to have some years of teaching under your belt in order to write? Yeah, I think so. Um, I certainly needed to spend a lot of time digesting the instruction Again, the oral instruction, the kuden that I received from my own teachers, and working with things like the koan training system. Um, some of the aspects of, uh, you know, one of the subjects of the book is what's called direct pointing, which are the, the, the methods that teachers use of various kinds to remove the obstructions in their students, to help them to enter meditative absorption, and ultimately to help them to have that experience we call Kensho or seeing your true nature. I had to work with those methods myself, although I had received the oral instruction regarding them and had experienced them on the on the receiving end as a student, I needed to have the experience as a teacher of applying them to really understand what they were getting at. So I'm still a young teacher, 52 years old. I've, I've been a formal Rinzai Zen teacher since I received Inka Shome in uh, 2008, so just about 12 years ago. I think my perspective 10 years from now could even be different, but I think at least finally at this point, I was ready to talk about some of these inherited methods in a way that I think has integrity. Mm, okay. You bring up Kensho, and I want to get into the book here really quick. So the opening line of the book itself reads, the entrance to the Zen path is not an intellectual understanding of the Buddhist teachings, but rather an experiential grasp of their central point. And then you go on to say that the experiential grasp is Kensho. And I've never had this term discussed on the show before, and I always love bringing up brand new vocabulary with guests whenever I realize there's a term that I've never even mentioned on this show. What is Kensho? Mm -hmm. Can you go into a little more detail on that for listeners? Kensho is awakening. Uh, Kensho is an uh, arising of the 
knowledge or the wisdom that is not different in essential content to what the Buddha realized. And Kensho is, in other words, Kensho, the arising of, of prajna, transcendent wisdom, is the entire point of the Buddhist path, all Buddhist paths, not just Zen. Zen takes that entrance or the arising of that recognition of one's true nature. Kensho means to see one's nature or true nature. Um, Zen takes that as the initial step of the path. We could say that there are some paths that use intellectual learning, conceptual understanding, various kinds of practices to gradually approach that arising of wisdom, and then afterward to deepen it, refine it, and so on. But Zen's approach is different. We should have that recognition as soon as possible at the beginning of the path. And it's precisely the Zen teacher's job to point it out to us and to cause us to have that recognition. Uh, famous words attributed to Bodhidharma, which I mentioned in the book too, you, you may recognize them, yeah. um, which just describe the intent and approach of Zen itself. All Zen, I'm not talking about Rinzai Zen. All Zen, Chan, Zen, and so on, uh, describes sort of the, the path itself as Kensho Jobutsu, to see one's true nature and become Buddha. There's no getting around the fact that Kensho is what Zen rests upon. Uh, so that even that simple fact of Zen, all Zen, um, in the West does not seem to be widely grasped. Um, there's this particular interpretation of Soto Zen teaching, which came out since the Meiji period, which somewhat downplays that experience. But we can say that there are some Zen groups in the West that even negate the importance of it. And to me, that's a gross, gross misunderstanding that I hope the book may, uh, you know, if not change minds, may challenge at least. Mm. Yeah, because it seems in the book that you find like a real limitation and possibly like even a threat to genuine Zen practice is this lack of Kensho and more of a pursuit to reading about experience instead of actually having experience. Does that Does that resonate? Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, completely. As you said, as you as you mentioned earlier, um, the line from the book saying that the entrance into Zen is experiential, not intellectual. Uh, no matter how profound one's conceptual grasp of what the Buddhist teachings are, what we are called upon to do is to have the experience that the Buddha had to some degree, perhaps not as profoundly initially as the awakening he experienced under the Bodhi tree. But we have to ourselves have an experiential recognition or grasp of that intrinsic wisdom. All of Zen practice, all of the subsequent path rests upon that. It's just the Zen approach. There's no getting around that. Again, this doesn't negate or intellectual understanding or mean that conceptual grasp of the teachings is not important. It is. But the unique Zen approach is for that to be something one engages with later. And the purpose then is to check that one's experiential understanding is correct, that one doesn't have any blind spots, that it is in accord with what's found in the sutras, the Buddhist writings, and so on. But again, all I can say about Zen, for better or worse, what Zen is, is an approach that takes some degree of that experiential understanding, the actual awakening, as not the later goal, but the beginning, the entrance into the path itself. Mm, okay. Well, yeah. And then, so we've talked about Kuden, we've talked about Kensho, and the next major concept you emphasize in the book is Samadhi. And I can't recall if this term has ever come up on the show either, so I'm just loving these new vocab words. <laughs> what is Samadhi? It's, it's a shame that, yeah, it's a shame that Kensho and Samadhi, which are the two central aspects of the Zen path, have never come up. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't. Per, in many I, conversations that people have about Zen, right? <laughs> I think that they have. Well, they, they have. It's just that, like, really hammering on those terms um, is, yeah. we've talked about the concepts so many times, but the it, really emphasizing those specific vocabulary terms is something that I really like to do on the show, just so, like, people can build their own Wonderful. understanding of, like, you know, different religions of the world and the vocabulary found within them and the way they're spoken about. So I just think it's really important to hammer down on those vocabulary terms when they pop up, you know? Yeah. And I appreciate that. I, I, I agree completely actually, um, especially key terms like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the introduction to this book, um, I, I have to admit that I was inspired by someone else. Um, 
you may have heard of uh, Victor Sogen Hori. Yes. Uh, a well-known you know, Rinzai Zen practitioner and scholar. And um, he wrote a book called Zen Sand, which is a very important translation uh, used in Zen practice or of a te- text material used in Zen practice, so-called capping phrases. Uh, but his introduction to that book is perhaps the best and most clear uh, explanation of Rinzai Zen koan practice, its intent, its structure, and so on, that's found in English. So I was so inspired reading that, and I thought, someone needs to write something talking about kensho, mm. awakening, so-called enlightenment, and also about samadhi. Samadhi means meditative absorption. It's the, it's the, the fruition of many, of, well, I should say of all Zen practice, uh, has to involve a particular type of meditative absorption. Uh, its purpose is to, in the beginning, to remove obstructions to awakening. It's within this state of meditative absorption that the condition that's ripe for awakening can uh, arise. And it's only through samadhi, meditative absorption, that after awakening, we could integrate and, and clarify and deepen that experience, embody it completely. So it's something that's central to the Zen path, central to all Buddhist meditative praxis, actually. And uh, just, just so important. But again, inspired by Hori, um, I was thinking I have to write something where we talk about Kensho and Samadhi in plain language and try to, again, conceptually, <laughs> mm. not, not experientially, but conceptually give people some idea. What do we mean by these words and what what is their uh, use in the Zen path and, and what is important to understand about them? So I don't know if I succeeded at it, certainly not to the degree that uh, he does in Zen Sen. So such a brilliant brilliant thing that he wrote but that that's what i had in mind was to try to clarify those words which are central centrally important to the zen path yeah well and this will come up later too but uh our our mutual friend Corey hess recommended that text to me a while ago so i have read that introduction and i concur completely that it is immensely readable um and i think that that's something that you do really well as also as a writer is that you are able to boil down these topics in ways that uh are totally in so many ways understandable for even brand new people such as myself. So I've appreciated about that about your writing just the way you appreciate that about Hori's writing as well. So, I mean, that's, that's my perception of your work as well. Oh, thank you. That, that makes me feel very good to hear that. And I, I just, I'm certainly not a scholar the way uh, Victor Silk and Hori is, but, uh, if I could write something that would be helpful to practitioners, that's enough for me. Mm, yeah. Okay. So you write, in the book that the primary focus is to highlight practices that are transmitted orally via kudan instruction from the teacher to the student. And you've mentioned this and you've mentioned that these practices are two things, direct pointing, which you've referred to and internal energetic cultivation. Um, and mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit more about these. So what they mean, and also you can feel free to tie them back in specifically to your previous points on Kensho and Samadhi, but since you already alluded to direct pointing, um, I'm curious if we can start there. What would this look like to a beginner, and then what might it transition to over time as somebody becomes more experienced in practice? So direct pointing speaks to the activity of the teacher. And the the first thing that we need to grasp is that Zen training, Zen practice takes place within human relationship, which is to say that one needs to find a qualified teacher uh, who has inherited a legitimate lineage and who has practiced to sufficient depth to depth to uh, in some way embody the realization that that is the, the, the intention of the Zen path. In other words, we need to find a teacher who has some degree of insight and who can physically, bodily manifest that. Direct pointing is what or, or refers to the ways that the teacher's activity can lead the student to have the same insight. In other words, it's direct pointing are the actions of body, speech, mind that the teacher uses to cause that same recognition to arise in the student. It's not that somehow the teacher's condition of mind is transmitted to the student, but the student can have the same recognition as the teacher, that their minds can match because we all have that intrinsic capacity to recognize our nature. So direct pointing refers to the methods that teachers use to cause that to happen. And uh, we classify them 
generally speaking, three different ways. One is, uh, you know, physical or bodily actions. You can find examples of these in Zen writings. For example, uh, such and such teacher struck a student with mm. his stick and the student had insight. You know, there's a lot that's going on behind the scenes there. The student's uh, state of meditative absorption is at play. The teacher's keen eye to see how a physically sharp action like that would cause something to uh, open or shatter within the student's condition, leading to the insight. All of that stuff is is what's below the surface and is understood through kuden. <laughs> mm. You won't find it in the writings themselves. So that's one category. Another category is what we call verbal means or, or means making use of sound. For example, uh, Rinzai shouted at a student and the student had an insight. Again, the, the <laughs> way that we use the the voice, which refers back to internal energetic cultivation and, and how the power of vibration and resonance and the particular quality of sound comes out in a seasoned practitioner. That's another interesting topic. And then the final category of direct pointing we talk about, um, we kind of can call extraordinary means or unusual means. And these refer to the way that the simple presence of a realized teacher affects the student. Uh, we refer to or we, we discuss what's called the ba, the, the field or the proximity of a realized person. Because of that person's power of meditative absorption, samadhi power, uh, in Japanese called joriki, the, literally the power of samadhi, and because of the internal energetic quality that they've cultivated, a re deeply realized person who has embodied insight can ha have quite a remarkable atmosphere. Um, the area of space around them uh, is somehow electrified or changed by the quality of their existence. That's what we call the ba, or the field around them. So th those kinds of direct pointing means, are, are, what, 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 it, what it really means is that just by entering into the presence of someone like that, you may find yourself entering into samadhi, or at least have some kind of clarity arising. You may be able to have insight. You may be able to arrive at Kensho simply by encountering someone like that. And that um, points also to the importance of the central Rinzai Zen practice method, which is called Sanzen, the encounter with the teacher. Zazen, of course, meditation. We have many practice methods, uh, including that. But the, the central practice of Rinzai Zen actually is to go into that small room we call the Doksan room or the Sanzen room and meet face-to-face -face with the teacher. Oftentimes the subject is a koan practice, but not necessarily. And simply through the quality of that teacher's existence, if they're a legitimate teacher who has embodied the practice to some degree, we can be transformed just by meeting them. So, so you know, direct pointing is a quite profound subject with many facets, as I just described. But I guess to sum it up, I would say it's it's the activity and the existence of the teacher that helps to unblock our obstructions and open our eyes and, and help arrange our conditions so that we, too, could arrive at that wisdom called Kensho. Mm. Yeah, I really like how you use the term embody, and you describe the embodied nature of Zen practice throughout the book also as yogic in a way, which captured my attention because of the tie to the physical as well as the mental. Like the mental seems more mm -hmm. emphasized in a lot of conversations, but I see you and like our mutual friend Corey Hess as giving equal weight to the physical. Zen is accomplished through the body and that it's not an intellectual understanding. And that's something I get from you and Corey. Um, I'm curious about why the body matters, if this ties into the internal energetic cultivation aspect you mentioned mm -hmm. as well. Can you elaborate a little bit on the body? Sure. And, and you know, and, and when someone like Corey, who has a profound experience of that kind of practice, or myself, when we talk about embodiment or the fact that Zen is accomplished through the body, it's not a unique take of ours. Um, it's really a correction to, I think, a somewhat unbalanced understanding that's prevalent in the West because mm. Buddhist practice itself is yogic. It's a stream of yogic spirituality coming out from that that kind of intensive mind-body exploration that has been done in India originally for, what, 3,500, 5,000 years, mm, we, yeah. we think at this point. You know, meditation itself, we sit in a zazen posture. Why do we sit in a particular posture? It's a yogic asana. It's a yogic position. The traditional understanding is that we sit in that way because of the effects that holding the body, using the breath, cultivating the subtle energetics in a particular way, 
have on the mind, on the way that we experience. We know that mind and body are connected. We know that affecting one affects the other. Um, so what I call yoga, the yogic approach to spirituality is that the it means that the most rapid, the most effective and, and, and decisive way to change the way that one's mind functions, the way that we experience, is to use the whole system. When you tweak the body, when you use particular mudra, when you use particular postures, when you use particular cultivated ways of breathing, the mind changes so quickly in a way that uh, is so much more effective than trying to change the mind with the mind itself. Mm. So why this understanding, which again is not just a Rinzai Zen thing or even a Zen thing, it's a Buddhist thing. Uh, Buddhist practice uses this approach. We use body, speech, and mind. Mm. It's not so widely grasped in the West. I think largely, uh, well, I think one reason is the Buddhist encounter with Western psychology and psychotherapy. Again, the secularization of the Buddhist path tends to negate some aspects of those traditional practice as somehow, uh, I don't know, culturally not relevant or benighted practices of those strange Asian people, whereas we in the West have this more sophisticated and scientific understanding of the human mind and its workings. It's really kind of I want to say racism, it's really orientalism mm. um, to negate those things reflexively. But I think a lot of that is what happens in the West. And much of what I, what I see happening in Zen in the West is that it's become psychologized. It's become a kind of servant of psychology, Western psychological understanding, whereas that original yogic understanding of our existence uh, and and how to affect the mind most effectively doesn't seem widely grasped. Mm. So um, I just want to say, Corey's, when Corey talks about embodiment, when I talk about this kind of stuff, we're talking about the Buddhist approach. We're not talking about something new or unique. It's just Buddhism. Yeah. As to how much of that it can be accepted in the West, how many Zen people in the West think of themselves as being Buddhist, I have no idea. Mm. I have no idea. But all we could do is stress the traditional approach. Yeah. Well, and uh, you know the the psychologization and the secularization. Does that tie into anything about what you describe Americans then as almost having a, a quality of bareness? Does that do those two things tie together to you at all? I think so. There's a certain sterility that comes out when you reflexively reject traditional training forms, throw them out the window. Be largely because you haven't really grasped their function and you assume that they're simply cultural baggage. Mm. Then you've just thrown out your whole toolbox. Um, I'll give you an example. It's, it's very common in Western Zen groups to throw out traditional training clothes, training garments, you know, like monastic robes and things like that, which is, you know, in a sense, if one can sit in anything that's comfortable or practice meditation in any kind of clothing, that's fine. But the assumption is that those things are just cultural accretions. They're not. The, as an example, the Rinzai Zen training clothing that I wear every day, there's a particular type of obi or belt. And the form of it and the manner in which it's worn lend itself to a particular breath cultivation, which is instructed orally making use of that belt. Now, if one hasn't received that instruction and all they see is, well, this is a strange Asian belt, why should I wear this? I can just sit in blue jeans. I'm going to throw it out. Mm. Okay, that makes sense. But that's the kind of that's the kind of problem that I see in Western Zen, where this knowledge hasn't been transmitted. You have people throwing out these toolboxes of things without really knowing what they're throwing out, and the sterility comes because they're not replacing these practice forms, practice tools, items, so on, with other things that have the same function. So you end up with a, a shrinking toolbox of methods and a, a shrinking ability to help students um, for the worst possible reasons. You know, throwing these things out of ignorance, throwing these things out out of ignorance, rather than a skillful decision to uh, you know adapt things to culture by replacing them with other items. This is so Does that make sense. <laughs> absolutely. So this is so important. And I think this is something that I don't think I know this is something that I've been guilty of in the past when I've dabbled in Buddhism in Zen, gone on retreats, uh, gone to weekly sitting groups, is that I've decided 
you know, in my head, like I was like super busy and I was like, okay, I have a specific thing I want to do. I want to go and I want to sit and I want to do some walking meditation and I want to go home. So I decided that Mm -hmm. things like liturgy didn't matter as much to me, nearly as much as the actual sitting. So I'd be sitting there getting antsy. And when I was asked to do something other than sitting, because I would constantly sit there and I would think this isn't why I came. This isn't why I'm here. I'm here for sitting. I'm not here for this liturgy or whatever. So I was totally guilty of throwing out all the things I didn't understand because I was, uh, you know, I was like overwhelmed or I was like, I'm in a hurry. And I was like allowing my busy life to allow me to just get rid of all these things I didn't understand. So I am a hundred percent guilty of it. And I know that so many other people are as well. So that's why I'm glad that you're bringing it up. You know, and that's not your fault. That's a teacher's fault. Mm. The teacher didn't tell you what those methods are for. And if the teacher didn't know, that's their teacher's fault. Or we could say if the teacher didn't know, it's not a legitimate qualified teacher. And yet that's a big problem in Western Zen yeah. in a very widespread way. Um, you know, something like liturgy or chanting. Yeah, there's uh, conceptual content translations to many of those things which are important to study. But there's also a way of chanting using the body and the breath in a manner that causes the samadhi condition to arise. In other words, chanting is done in a particular manner as a study of mantric resonance and vibration that makes one's meditation more profound. It's an incredibly powerful tool. And because it uses sound, it's also a tool that one can use to affect others. That's the purpose of Zen ceremony. When we chant at a funeral, for example, it's not the intellectual meaning of the chants that's important. What's important is how I could use the vibration of my own body and breath to cause the mourners to step out from their grief by making them enter samadhi. Mm. Mm. That's the kind of hidden function of things that is transmitted by kudan. I just told you. Yeah. (laughs) Did you know that during the Zen funeral, the purpose of the chanting is to cause the mourners to enter a meditative state so that they can step out from their grief? Mm. Didn't know that. and that's an interesting thing. It's a crucial thing to know if one is a Zen priest conducting a funeral. <laughs> now, if one doesn't have the training, if one doesn't have the training and the power energetically through the embodiment of one's own practice to make that effect happen, then we can say, okay, you're not a Zen priest mm. in the truest sense. That's, that's a hard thing to say. But I think some of these hard things need to be said, again, in Western Zen, when so much is getting thrown out carelessly, I want people to look at the functions of what we've inherited. And if you've mastered those functions, then feel free. Throw them out and replace them with something else because you are master. If you haven't, we have to be careful. Yeah. Can, can, uh, so can you talk a little bit about how you were transmitted to care about these hidden things that maybe others weren't? Did you have a special teacher and instruction who emphasized this to you early in your practice? You know, my, I, I, I happen to believe my teachers are all very special. <laughs> yeah. And, and not just my, my Zen teachers. I was very fortunate earlier in my life to encounter some incredibly, I now know, eminent and famous and deeply realized masters in the Tibetan tradition and the Theravadan tradition. At the time, I had no idea who they were or how fortunate I was. But each of them had a particular quality that I or did some kind of activity that I later also experienced with my Zen teachers. So it was kind of an interesting uh, uh, confluence of, of, of things for me to experience. But um, for what it's worth, and I don't know why this is, but I, I think some Zen lineages, I, I guess I could only speak about Rinzai Zen lineages, some of them seem to transmit this material, of course, through Kudan, oral instruction. But some of them, it seems to be more implicit that one sort of catches it by osmosis over time. Traditionally, that would be through many years in a monastery and so on. Some lineages, it seems to be more explicitly explained. And in the case of my own lineage, that's the case. So uh, my teachers, in a very kind way, in in the manner that in Zen we call grandmotherly, (laughs) which which is very perhaps overly kind at times, um, it would explain these things. This is why we do this. When you chant, this is how you're using your body. This is how you train your breathing and body to chant in this manner to cause samadhi to arise and affect others. They explained it as openly as I'm talking about it to you. Yeah. 
um, that's my incredible good fortune. So because I had that, I like to share it as much as I could. And I know that some people that didn't have that experience with their teachers or didn't receive that explicit instruction may not believe what I'm saying or may, you know, it's, it's not in their experience. But the most I could do is, is point to places in the Zen writings, the Zen history that also confirm those ideas and mm. those ways of using the, the body so on yeah and when we have that that we have that material so i hope what i could offer will help open up new avenues for people's practice well i I know you are opening up those doors because i mean i talked to robert and he told me exactly those words so you have a way of talking about it that is connecting with americans and westerners who are looking for this genuine path so from my outside perspective i can tell that you are making an impact but you know, you're also super engaged, like online, like you spend a lot of time clearing up misconceptions on like, uh, and quest- answering questions deeply on Facebook groups. I mean, it's truly incredible the amount of effort you're going into to make sure that this <laughs> full toolbox of Zen practice is you're, you're putting yourself out there to answer questions. I mean, it's really admirable. And you know, I wish I could say it's all out of noble intention. Sometimes I just can't help myself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love it. So <laughs> something else that I've really enjoyed learning about you in the last two years since we became acquainted is your emphasis on the physical, which you write about in this book. And when you say, in my own Rinzai lineage, because of forebears who were also masters of discipline, like swordsmanship and calligraphy, physical culture and the arts have been deeply integrated. And you have many hobbies besides being a Zen teacher and an abbot. You are, you do uh, forging martial arts. Are are these parts of your practice as well? Or are these just hobbies that you enjoy? Um, Well, martial arts, first of all, um, one of my very important teachers who's now passed away, Toyota Sensei, he was a, a lay Zen practitioner. He was not a priest, but he was he was a Zen master. He received an Inca and, and had that recognition. But he was also a, a master level teacher of Aikido. So um, my involvement with him for many years was not only Zen training, but studying martial arts with him. But certainly martial arts, or any physical culture, but my experiences with martial arts, um, can supplement or complement Zen training in very profound and powerful ways. There are commonalities in the body usage, in the way the breathing and the energetics are trained between traditional martial arts and Zen training. That's that's one of the things that uh, uh, was discovered very strongly when Chinese Zen masters came to China or came to Japan in the Kamakura period and encountered these newly ascendant samurai class. Somehow they saw that there was something similar there in the way that they were engaging their bodies and minds in a path of training. So one of the reasons Zen took such root in Japan, I think, was because of that. But it's much more than a hobby. It's it's um, a way to see how one's Zen training actually functions in a situation of crisis or duress, because that's what martial arts is all about. If one can use those martial intense situations to forge and refine one's uh, Zen cultivation, I think it just kind of supercharges one's training. You know, what I've always told people is if you do Zen, your martial arts will be better. Mm. If you do martial arts, your Zen will be more intense and better. So you don't have to do both, but if it speaks to you, what a powerful, powerful combined discipline that can be if one knows how to do it. Um, as for the forging you mentioned, um, that's, that was started as more of a personal interest. You know, I, I was always interested in metalworking and wanted to do, I've always been kind of crafty in a sense. So I, I thought it would be neat to learn that and and to forge the metal implements we use around the monastery. To I, I make knives mostly for outdoor people that help fund the monastery, that kind of thing. It's it's fun. Awesome. But yeah, I could, I could look at that also as a discipline of Zen practice in our use of the arts, or, or in this case, I would call it more of a craft than an art. We look at how one uses one's body and mind to work with the materials, how we use timing, how we use space, how we use the energetics of our own existence to mold and transform media in ways that can communicate something of Zen realization. And, and, you know, forging is cool because you've got metal, you've got fire, you've got water, you get to play with these things (laughs) and, and literally forge something on an anvil, hammering hot metal in the way that we forge our own existence in Zen training. It's, it's just a wonderful, wonderful, uh, 
manifestation of one's practice to be able to do that. So mm. uh, it's a hobby, but um, I don't know what's hobby anymore. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know anymore what is not part of my practice. I think practice is a way of being, and we should be able to integrate anything into it. So uh, I can't call it just hobby. Uh, maybe I don't know how to just relax and have fun with something anymore. <laughs> that's possible too. <laughs> yeah, that's powerfully symbolic as well about the forging. Uh, as you know, how you talk yeah. about Zen is forging a a you know the body as well. Like that's so cool. Um, you know, and well, we're... It's, it's interesting you said that. I just, I just want to mention to you that um, we have this word shugyo, which we use a lot in Japanese, uh, which refers to the deepest possible physical and spiritual training, using life to forge oneself in a sense. And uh, Hoskar Roshi, my, one of my teachers, when he visited Korinji last year, he was trying to think, what's the English word that we can use to really give people a sense of that? And he stepped into the forge room here, where I have the anvil and the forge and all that, and it struck him. He, he started getting excited and saying, forge, we have to say forge. Mm. People need to understand that forging their lives. I thought that was wonderful, wonderful. Wow, absolutely. So you just hit on that, yeah. Well, you know, and we're, we're in this very, uh, I know it's cliche to say at this point, but an odd time in the world. And a line in the book sort of took me aback because of the time when we're living and we're recording this in, you know, July. Um, and so the line reads, I should say that if dire predictions of worldwide environmental and social collapse come to pass, I would certainly hope that books like this might help some Zen practices to survive, even if it comes down to the smallest thread. And you wrote this book, you know, in the last couple of years, um, I've been following your progress as you've been writing it over the last several, like many months has this line taken on new meaning to you since you first wrote it? Um, I, I, you know, in a, in a sense, it's in our faces right now, uh, in a way that you know, it's not theoretical right now. We're 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 seeing certainly signs of, of different kinds of collapse um, in a way that we weren't even a year ago, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, what I had in mind when I wrote that, first of all, is that Zen has survived the collapse of governments, civilizations, and so on over thousands of years in, in China and Japan, the collapse of dynasties, civil war engulfing Japan. Zen, Zen survived through all of that wonderfully uh, as an incredible treasure of human spirituality. I, I don't know if I'm much of an optimist about the mm -hmm. <laughs> future of the human race. We have some pretty severe challenges coming around faster than I think we expected. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Yeah, the most I could hope for is that if the human race uh, can survive and, and, and there can be some places where some of the incredible achievements of our spirituality survive, that uh, some kind of treasury of transmitted methods could be part of that. And, uh, you know, my, my book is nothing special, I have to say, but there's some things in it that I think are hard-won treasures coming out from the deep experiences of our lineage forebears, you know, people who sweated blood in their own spiritual quests and transmitted some very effective, again, hard-won things to us. I don't want to see that go away. So whatever does happen in the future, if, if some copy of Hidden Zen is, is discovered in a post-apocalyptic dusty basement someplace <laughs> yeah <laughs> and people are still reading english i hope it's useful well you just <laughs> you know, uh, have a vision of like planet of the apes or something <laughs> well i mean seriously you just i don't know if you've ever read this book but you just described the plot for a book called a canticle for Leibowitz, which came out in, in the 1960s where a group of franciscan monks find and dig up old copies of things that you know, from the past civilization before a pre-apocalyptic society happened, and they're, like, translating it. So, like, you basically just described a, a, uh, a speculative fiction novel from the 60s, which I absolutely <laughs> love, so I'm just going to latch on to that. Oh, boy. Uh, that's great. Yeah. So, you know the movie Book of Eli? That, it reminds me of that. Oh, you yeah. You know that movie? Absolutely. It's fantastic. Yeah. Okay, so Mado, I'm really pumped for the new book, and I love following your contributions to the practices and discussions that I follow you taking part in, as I mentioned before. You're always very positive, um, and I know you just mentioned you're, you know, you're slightly less hopeful, but you don't come across that way. So um, you're kind, generous, and 
you know, reading your work makes me happy. It has for the last two and a half years. Um, I'm curious about some of your goals with the monastery and your life in the next couple of years. Well, that's interesting. I mean, the, those monastery in my life in one sense are not separate, but in another sense, they have to be um, because I'm a human being like anyone else. Um, I would like the monastery to survive. Um, right now we have three people living here with me doing uh, intensive residential practice Three, four, five, maybe six people at any given time really digging into the Rinzai Zen path and bringing it to fruition in their bodies. And then however long after they, you know, however long they like to stay here after that, going out into the world and, and using it and helping people with it. That's that's the most I could ask for. That's enough mm. for Korinji. I don't have ambitions for it to be a grandiose monastic establishment with hundreds of people. It's it's I like to call it a small, poor country temple, which is literally what it is. Uh, but if it transforms even one life, I don't know how that seed will sprout and affect the future or how many people it will affect in the future. All I can do is is cast that seed. And I think that's that's a wonderful way to spend my life. I think that's satisfying to me. Um, for, for my personal life, I, I've devoted all of my adult life to some kind of training, often at the expense of personal relationships and certainly at the expense of any kind of um, stability, certainly at the expense of being close to my family. I would like in the next 10 years, uh, dare I say, maybe to have a family of my own if it's mm. not too late, maybe to spend more time with my parents. <laughs> mm -hmm. Simple, simple, simple things like that would be nice. But if none of that happens, uh, you know, maybe I will get sick next month and that will be it for me. We, we, we don't know. Um, I feel like I've spent my, my life, though not always skillfully by any means, um, I've done something worthwhile for it. So that's not a bad place to be at age 52. It's not at all. Where can people find you if they want to know more? Do you have a website you'd like to put into people's ears? Yeah, certainly. Koringi.org. K-O-R-I-N-J-I.org. Awesome. Well, Mato Moore, this has been an absolute pleasure having you back on classical ideas a few years and change past your first appearance so it's a delight to catch up and hear what's going on hear about the progress of the monastery hear about hidden zen and uh, to talk about zen in the west it's just a delight to have you here today likewise and i hope we can finally meet you know watching classical ideas do the good work that you do and and the amazing people that you've engaged with it um I wish you the best, but I hope we can finally meet face-to-face -face and, and not mess up the schedule next time. <laughs> Indeed, I agree. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Streibing. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show... Please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast. Thanks so much for listening.